Like many Americans, you might have recently noticed that the war in Ukraine isn't going so well for Ukraine. You might have noticed that's happening despite the Biden administration deciding on sending the Ukrainian regime more and more money and weapons, no matter what. You've heard the steady drumbeat of rhetoric or propaganda coming out of the White House about Ukraine and its prospects, implausible and increasingly ridiculous language uttered in concert by the foreign policy establishment and our Western allies, most of whom seem to think, whether they believe it or not, that Russia's destruction and replacement with a Western-style regime is a good thing and right around the corner. Look at the West, though, and you have to wonder what kind of regime they're really talking about. Right here in the so-called Anglosphere, among our closest partners in the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance, we've watched helplessly as basic rights have been ruthlessly curtailed, censorship has dramatically increased, and the worst, most disturbing perversions have been shoved down our throats through compulsory celebrations all but ordered by official decree. We've seen bank accounts frozen, groups and individuals deplatformed, and fundamental rights and principles such as those in our own First Amendment nakedly challenged by the bureaucratic Borg as sources of misinformation that must be purged from our speech, no doubt next, from our minds. What does the West mean in the year of our Lord 2023, or as the regime people call it, the common era? The sad fact millions and millions of Westerners can't deny anymore is that their civilization has gone through the spiritual and political equivalent of a gender transition, forcibly and unnaturally mutated into something grotesque and unhealthy, something we all know it's not. Where can we turn in a moment like this to figure out what to do next? In the old days, we'd turn on the TV, gather around the radio, or hit the library for guidance from leaders, experts, and men of old. But the digital revolution has changed all that. We can't look at the media or even the book in the same way as we used to, as unquestioned sources of truth and authority. Actually, that's not entirely a bad thing. After all, as St. John pointed out, Christ the Lord did more good things than could ever be written down or summed up in a multi-volume set. Surely scripture is, to quote St. Innocent of Alaska, all that is necessary for us to know for our salvation, yet Jesus himself didn't write a book. When Gavin McGinnis came on this program, he wondered aloud if maybe print should die. As an author and writer myself, I'll just say way too many books are written by people who almost worship the book. They think the words of men, or increasingly even machines, will save us. That there's a perfect language out there we can invent or discover to create, in effect, a new god. That's worse than idolatry. That's demonic. St. Innocent expressed the heart of Christian teaching that, quote, you must study the holy books with simplicity of heart, that Christians must truly love Jesus Christ with our hearts and not just with our words. It's God's word, not ours, that gives life. St. Paul says Christ made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. Yeah! In a Western world cracked out on its own communications, how do we work our way back to the communion of the heart? University of Austin's Patrick Gray will school us on that and much more. I'm James Polis. This is Zero Hour.
Professor Patrick Gray is indeed the founding dean of arts and letters at the University of Austin, probably America's foremost new college campus for free thought and academic inquiry. He specializes in Shakespeare and theology and literature. He's taught at West Point, studied at Oxford, and graduated from Yale. I left out about 35 other very impressive pit stops. My favorite, he was once a research fellow at the Australian Research Council Center for the History of Emotions, 1100 to 1800 AD. Patrick, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. You've seen your share of, uh, of college campuses. What is going on with America's emotions right now? It's a great question. Uh, I think... I'll start with a, a bit of fact or, or sociology that I was intrigued to discover when I was doing some research on vampires. About 10, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago, vampires were the thing. It was like Twilight was big and there was uh, vampire diaries. I thought, why are we suddenly so obsessed with vampires? What's going on? And I realized vampires are kind of a symbol of the, of the narcissist of the person who is, is feeding on other people and not being vulnerable in return. And I thought, ah, oh, this is a sort of symbolic way for our culture to, to identify and think through these problems. Um, and the, the finding that I was intrigued by is that, um, according to psychiatrists, the disorders of, of neuroticism, which are associated with guilt, have, have faded somewhat or are no longer as prominent. Instead, what we get today are disorders of narcissism or more generally disorders of of relationality, how we connect to other people. And in some ways that's counterintuitive because you think, well, today as opposed to AD 1206, we have a lot more range of choice about how we relate to people. We, you, know, you can find your own community, you can um, set up your, your friends or your loved ones or your family in any different number of ways. But it turns out that actually seems to create some problems. Um, it tends to create a sense of isolation, a sense of kind of solipsism. Uh, I think the other way in which emotions, oh, and, it, and that tends to create a certain fragility because um, the, more, the more invested you are in a sort of fragile, in, in, in a self-created solipsistic self, the, the more vulnerable you are to having that rattled or jarred or, 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 or knocked over by something that you didn't expect. And that's where I think we get a lot of this feeling of, of um, like safetyism on campus, of the need to be protected and so on. And uh, this idea of the self as a kind of narrative that needs to be protected from countervailing evidence or from uh, objections from other people. Yeah, this is really interesting about the vampire stuff. I mean, you know, there's there's ostensibly this sort of uh, this folk legend that there's a kind of pornography for every subject that is on the internet. My version of this is there's a Marilyn Manson lyric for everything, for every case, and in this case, there is one. Um, it is I don't know which me that I love. I've got no reflection. Uh, yes, kind of uh, kind of a a, a dark prophet of uh, of our age in so many ways. Uh, maybe one day, uh, if uh, if the if legal allows it, I'll, I'll get him on the show. Uh, but yes, there is this sort of uh, uh, a, a narcissism that brings with it this kind of this this fracture, this inability to see yourself, and uh, a desire to disappear into an identity rather than to um, to kind of reckon with the fact that you are a a, a given person. Uh, you, you do not own yourself. You cannot infinitely create yourself. You are, in a certain sense, stuck with who you are. Um, I want to start out by talking about uh, uh, UATX. Is that is that how we how we say? Yes. UATX, yeah, yeah. University of Austin. 
Um, this is this is something new in the world of academia, which is not uh, like a, a crackpot theory or a deranged social movement <laughs> or a witch hunt. Um, how did this happen? Uh, I, I think you know there's there's some some uh, some sort of tech money originally involved. Uh, got, got some people together who had 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 their fill of academia. Maybe some of them got chased out. Uh, I don't want to to fudge the story. Uh, just give us kind of UATX origins. Okay, now I have to say I was not there myself at the origins, but I have started to hear the legends. And I think, I think really we're looking at a group of, of, of three or four people there at the beginning. We have journalist Barry Weiss, historian Neil Ferguson, uh, entrepreneur Joe, and philanthropist Joe Lonsdale, and our current president of the institution, Pano Canellos. Um, and they were discussing problems in higher education, how can they possibly be fixed, what can we do, uh, and hit upon the idea, listen, why don't we start a new institution of higher education? Why don't we, why don't we make this happen? What would that require? What would be involved? Um, uh, Joe very generously sort of got the ball rolling on the, on the funding that's involved. Uh, since then, we have attracted a lot of other founders and donors. We have been raising some along the lines of about $2 million a week for the past year and a half or so. Not bad. Yeah, we, we've, the, the interest has been overwhelming from, from, I mean, we've received thousands of expressions of interest from prospective faculty, like maybe tens of thousands of student interest, you know, people writing in to say, I'd like to be involved, I'd like to attend this, How, what would be, can I transfer in? You know, we've had um, short programs for students at the high school level, uh, undergraduate level, graduate level, we've been overwhelmed by student response. We've brought in students from super high-end institutions, you know, Oxford, the Sorbonne, Harvard, you know, uh, Yale, coming in, wanting to take classes with us. We have something we call forbidden courses, the idea of being, here's the class you, you couldn't take at your home institution, we're going to offer it to you here. Um, and uh, we've, we've had a really warm response from that. Can you allow us a glimpse into the forbidden course list? And to the forbidden course list, sure. Uh, one uh, that I can imagine might, might interest you is was on um, you know, science and religion. Can these can these be reconciled? Um, what do they have in common? How have they influenced each other over time? Uh, other other courses included uh, questions about the biology of gender. You know, uh, well, another with uh, Mark Lilla on. Um, the tension or interrelation of reactionary and conservative. You know, how, how, what, how are these different? How do they relate to each other? What is conservatism? A uh, course that will have to be taught for the next 10,000 years in order for people to, <laughs> to figure it out. I mean, you know, God bless them, but I watch these guys online just like going around and around and around and around trying to nail this stuff down. Um, what do you, I mean, do we have like too many names for things, like too many categories? The internet has fragmented so much of this stuff, you know, especially for young people, just kind of like, which of these 800 genders do I belong to? Which of these 5,000 subcategories of conservatism do I, like, where does it end? Does it end? That's a great question. I, you know, I think, I certainly think that the old political categories of left and right are becoming increasingly useless. The, you know, the, the, the left um, is no longer focused on social class in anything like the way that it once was. Uh, the right uh, has many different, you know, options within it. Uh, you have a, I would say you have a kind of libertarian side, you have this sort of more conservative side. Uh, 
uh, for me, you know, in my research, I study uh, ancient Rome, and, and in particular, Rome's transition from republic to uh, empire. So increasingly, to me, our politics seem to resemble the, the politics of, uh, you know, the, the, the ancient conflict of the orders, where you have the patricians and the, plebe the plebeians. And it seems to me that the, the main political divide at the moment is between uh, a group of people who say there should be a small sort of Mandarin, highly trained, elect, uh, not necessarily elected elite who run things and who are really smart and who got trained. And then like this sort of lump and mass of everybody else that gets told what to do. And then you have another side, which is like the, the plebeians of old, which is saying, well, actually, no, we would like to have some say in, in how we're governed. We don't actually necessarily agree with um, how you guys run things. And it's, it's funny for me, you know, when I was um, reading all this Roman history, I used to think, how did the patricians not lose, like immediately? Like there's so few of the patricians compared to the plebeians. Like how did, how did, how did this conflict go on for so long? But now that I'm in something like it, I see it's, if you have um, a sort of entrenched elite that uh, people have a habit of deferring to, it's, it's very hard to shake it. It's very hard to replace it. It's, it's not a simple thing to get, you know, um, circulation of elites. Yeah, even even among gamers where you find some of the, the biggest edgelords, pleb is like the big insult. So, uh, <laughs> yes, class consciousness is is alive and well. Um, lots to dig into. I, you know, I, I kind of want to start with like, how do you avoid um, uh, falling into the same kind of, of trap or pattern that academia as a whole has fallen into. I mean, you're, you're a dean that's kind of like a, yeah. a certain kind of feudal lord. Uh, <laughs> my, uh, my, my dissertation uh, uh, committee chair once referred to academia as the last feudal institution. He said, find your feudal lord, they will protect you. Um, can you how do you like protect these kids from what's become of the rest of academia without just kind of getting sucked into to safe space culture all over again? Man, that's, that's a great question. It's something we've been wrestling with internally um, in great detail, actually. And I think uh, um, we've come to some interesting conclusions about that, I think. Um, one is, is the, I suppose the way I would put it is that the invisible hand is not enough. Like you can't just sort of leave everybody free to do whatever they want and trust that what's going to emerge out of that is is necessarily good. I think in a in a um, in a in a state or a nation, it's very important for everyone to be able to have a voice. For any, anyone can set up their soapbox on on speaker's corner and and appeal to rhetoric, appeal to emotion, say whatever they please. Um, within a uh, but within a university, as also to some degree within a state, you need, you need some sort of structure uh, in order to prevent the emergence of tyranny. And, and the, the way I'd put that is this. If you look at, um, if you look at a truly laissez-faire economy, what emerges is a monopoly. If you look at a truly anarchic state like um, Somalia once upon a time or, or, or so on, right? Or, or, or Libya, um, what eventually emerges tends to be a strongman. So I think what we see now, when, when we look at um, kind of the very rapid rise of a quasi-totalitarian identity politics throughout universities, um, that is a response to a vacuum, a power vacuum, and, and, a, and, a, and a lack of direction. You know, I think this is more generally true within our culture. You have the, 
the, you know, the, you have the kind of boomer generation, you had this sort of, we're going to make the world into Marxist paradise. Then when that falls apart, you have a kind of Gen X generation, which says, well, burn it, nothing's going to work. You know, there's no point in trying to do anything. That's a sort of untenable way to live long term. Like eventually people want a purpose and a mission and, and, a, and a drive. And so identity politics comes roaring in to fill that gap. So um, rather than saying we're going to guarantee that, that um, anyone is free to do absolutely anything, total freedom of expression, we are going to uh, have a clearly defined mission and make sure that our mission and aim is not political. Our mission is to arrive at the truth. You know, we've tried to enshrine three principles, um, open inquiry, intellectual humility, and civil discourse. Uh, and what we've re realized is there, there's a lot that goes into that. There's a lot to guarantee that goes into guaranteeing that those um, ideals can be pursued. There's a lot of premises that go into the assumption that they are ideals that are worth pursuing. But they provide an orientation for our institution and a way for us to say, you know, this is, this is acceptable, this is not acceptable. You know, shouting down a speaker, this is not acceptable for these reasons. Um, you know, hiring this person as opposed to that. It, it's all about sort of alignment with a mission and having a very carefully crafted mission. Yeah, in some ways, just sort of starting from from solid ground and, and building up again. Uh, I found it really interesting when uh, when Joe Lonsdale, he's kind of a local around here in Texas, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, took the step to be that first guy to sort of pony up for for what you're doing. Um, you know, it wasn't that long ago that the uh, the kind of um, received wisdom or or general public impression about how Silicon Valley viewed education was basically the Peter Thiel model, which is a little bit more akin to your, you know, Gen X, which is <laughs> it's broken, burn it down, let it die, drop out of college, not worth your time, not worth your money, and pursue a monopoly. You know, mm, don't compete. Yeah, 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 don't yeah. try to open like a, a coffee yeah. shop in Brooklyn. You know, find find something that nobody's doing and become the person or, or the organization that does it best and, and owns that. Um, and you know, there, there's still definitely some of that energy going around, but it seemed to me to be like a real watershed for someone at Joe's level in uh, in the Valley or what's become of sort of tech after, uh, you know, San Francisco has become like like the Academy, a place that people are just sort of yeah, scurrying yeah, away yeah. from. Uh, and to say like, you know what, actually no, like, yeah, maybe academia is, um, is fundamentally broken right now, but that doesn't mean that education is a lost cause. Uh, and that, in fact, this is, you know, this has kind of paradoxically become that kind of, uh, that greenfield where if you step in right now, you know, you might be kind of, I mean, look, you got Hillsdale, God bless him. You got St. John's and you just, you got uh, Panos from, from St. John's, right? Yep, that's right. That's right. Uh, okay. And so, you know, there's two. And that's, I, I mean, Grove City's been through the ringer on, mm -hmm. on sort mm -hmm. of, sort of wokeness and what, what's going on with the, the faculty and administration there. Um, it's a short list, man. And then COVID kind of knocked out a bunch of schools too. Even yeah. to this day, some campuses in California, you can't register. We, you're not coming onto campus unless you take the vac, unless you are fully up to mm, yeah, the latest yeah. you boosters upon boosters. Uh, so the pool is really shrinking. And you know there are a few great colleges out there, great universities, uh, but it really is kind of a greenfield. 
Um, there hasn't been a new one uh, uh, on campus. You got, you got universities closing down, selling their buildings off, cut rate prices. Um, so, uh, you know, I think it really is to be commended that you guys are stepping into the breach in this way and doing something that, you know, in some ways these are, these are ancient problems of how do you educate and how do you build an educational institution. Uh, but you're doing it, you're doing it almost totally from scratch and, uh, and really just kind of hoisting that flag. I mean, you must be getting lots of, of student inquiries, as you suggested. If you're, if you're young enough <laughs> to be thinking about where to go now, um, or if you're a parent who has a kid who's that age, um, what's the best way to, to sort of open the conversation or, or to, to, to apply or, or, or see about UATX? I would say, you know, email us or look, go to our website, contact our admissions team. We are, we're looking for, um, uh, well, let me, let me back up. We are in a process of, of accreditation. And this is a, this is a, a multi-year process. The all-important accreditation. Yeah, the Those all people important. are very powerful. They are very powerful indeed. And so I, I, I should be careful to say that we are, um, we are not in a... Uh, we are planning to admit our first class of students uh, in the fall of 2024. And we expect to receive a green light to begin officially advertising for that incoming cohort um, later this year. I'm certainly not going to ask you uh, in, in a form as public as this whether the accreditors are the bad guys, but you know, just just maybe generally, you can you can sort. I mean, how much power do they really have, and are they are they strangling some uh, some green shoots that we'd otherwise have as a whole? Of course, not the good people who are holding your fate in in the balance. <laughs> They are so. I have to say, we we have been uh, we've been pleasantly surprised at, at how well things have gone. I do. I mean, at the same time, just to give you some sense, you know, our application for accreditation is eighteen hundred pages long. Mm -hmm. We've got you know um, superstar people coming in helping us. I mean, I'm I'm the I'm the youngest of the deans. We've got people coming in from. Uh, uh, Columbia Business School from the U.S. Naval Academy. You know, we're hiring people from Cambridge that have been professors at Harvard. Uh, so I remember at one point thinking, "My goodness, if we if we can't get accreditation, I mean, we've got like a hundred <laughs> well, like a hundred towards one hundred fifty million, you know, in, in in funding that we've raised and so on." Yeah, then we we really would need to burn it down. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I I, I do think it would be uh, it is something that is is worth our society asking itself about as a political question, what is this process of accreditation? What, what purpose does it serve? What purpose would we like it to serve? Um, and uh, and it's, it, it, is, it is a long and complicated process. You know? So it's, it's, uh, it takes about um, you know, five, five to seven years from start to finish. You, you, you graduate your first uh, class provisionally. Um, now we're going to kind of sweeten the deal for them by offering some pretty generous scholarships, thanks to the generosity of people like Joe. Um, and we will be able to hook them up with some very interested employers. So I think it will it will be a good deal. Uh, but but yeah, the, the whole the 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 larger shape of accreditation within our within our nation is something worth considering. I was going to say that timeline's worse than grad school. Oh my god, it's gosh. amazing anyone can survive. <laughs> 
Uh, so tell us a little bit about your process. Um, you've been around. Uh, you didn't have to do this. Uh, when did you when did you catch wind uh, that there was actually a, a sort of uh, you know a, a glimmer on the horizon? And and how did you uh, how did you make the jump? Uh, you know, I had been following this with great interest since the very beginning. Uh, and I was working in a, I was working in England up until recently at a, at a university there. And I was in charge of uh, developing a, a liberal arts program in, internally, including uh, elements of a core curriculum. And that put me right in the crosshairs of every kind of fight you can imagine. You Turns know? out the core values people don't like core <laughs> curriculum very much. Oh it's interesting. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh. You know, this is, this is the moment of sort of decolonize the curriculum and so on. So uh, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a story that might help to illustrate the, the kind of difficulties that I, was, that I was wrestling with there. You know, at this, we're hiring a bunch of people. We're hiring five, 10 people every year at this point in the humanities, which is very unusual. I said, okay, decolonize the curriculum. Let's, uh, let's do that. Let's do that. You know, let's, let's hire, let's look at what was going on in, in societies such as um, South Asia, East Asia, Persia, um, North Africa. Uh, let's get a specialist in Sanskrit. Let's get a specialist in, um, you know, classical Arabic. Let's have our next five or six hires be devoted to these categories. And, uh, and let's have them all be pre-modern. You know, before 19th century British colonialism, let's figure out what was, what was happening. And the response was essentially, no, you know, heck no. Pre-colonization, uh, yeah, that's exactly. no good. Because, because what I realized was a lot of that stuff, what they really wanted was to, 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 to get rid of anything old, as they saw it. It's, it's, like the, it's, like the, um, it's like the Red Guard, out with the four olds. It's like the Cultural Revolution in China. Uh, so sometimes I think um, um, ostensible concerns about racism or decolonization within humanities departments are really a kind of turf war between chronological periods. And uh, classic academic mud ex fight. Exactly. It, well, I think but but that that turf war over chronological periods is a is a proxy war for politics. Mm -hmm. Because essentially what they've said is we've gotten rid of all the sort of conservative religious people like all the conservative religious staff. Nobody like that's getting hired anymore. Now we need to make sure the students aren't even reading anybody like that. You know, we'd, we've gotten rid of all the faculty who might agree with St. Augustine. Now we need to get rid of St. Augustine or Aristotle or so on. So that all, the only thing students encounter is stuff written, you know, post-World War II or post-1970, post-zero hour, to cite the name of the show. You know, it's, it's an effort to, to sort of reboot history at whatever sort of arbitrary modern cutoff there is and to sort of erase from memory all the sort of wrong think. So we talked about uh, 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 Lonsdale versus Teal, although, you know, not really versus there. Everyone's kind of on the same team with that, but it's, it is interesting. I want to talk about, uh, uh, you know, Elon Musk is also floating around in Texas here. Um, X AI has just mm. announced itself. Um, and what is the purpose of XAI? Uh, he says that it is to, um, to understand the truth about the universe. Uh, you mentioned truth as one of your, uh, one of your three, you're laughing, one of your three main principles. Um, 
You know, there's there's this question about like, can a, any kind of human creation really understand the truth about the universe? There's also, you know, the, the, the just a pilot's infamous question, you know, what is truth? You know? Um, and so when you're looking at these these questions, any any academic enterprise like this is gonna have to um, encourage students to come face to face with that kind of ultimate question. Uh, what is truth? What is it to be human? What is it to be a human person? Why, why exist at all? Why bother? Why any of it? Um, especially at a time when uh, at least some of the top technologists are trying to, I don't know, I think they feel like they can really do an end run around some of these questions. And they say, well, don't worry about it. Let's get a big data set and it'll train itself and then it'll, we'll finally have the answer. Um, how, do you, how do you ensure that a university is doing this? Um, while trying to balance, you know, is it a is it a theology department? Is it a Christian university? Is it neither of those things? Um, so many of these major questions are theological questions, and for the whole scope of human history, they have been religious questions. Are students ready for that? And are how are you? You know, how do you want to give it to them? Oh man, that is a very rich set of topics. I'll start with I'll start with AI, and then I'll I'll come back around to this question of of our the university's relation to theology. So with AI, you know, the reason I started laughing at the idea that AI is going to get us to truth, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding out there about what AI is. People, people don't know enough about the weeds of how it works. You know, uh, there's a great uh, essay by the mathematician Stephen Wolfram, which gets a, a little more into detail of what it is. It's, it's, it's AI, like ChatGPT, is like a really clever parrot. You know, it's just, it's just taking, it just is telling you what is the most likely thing that some human being would say in this situation, given what other human beings have said, you know? So if you wanted to use, people say, oh, what if students use ChatGPT to write their essays? Well, by its very nature, ChatGPT is going to give you the most cliched, um, commonplace, unoriginal essay you can possibly imagine, because what it is doing is, is sort of distilling everything that's already been said. And, uh, and so the idea that it's going to lead us to truth is, 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 it will lead us to the truth of what is the sort of median of the kinds of things that we talk about, but yeah. not Con consensus is not truth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, I can see it being useful in a, for mathematics or, you know, there, there are certain kinds of mathematical operations that it, that it is tedious for a human being to do by hand, but a machine can. So I think there's a lot of overestimation of, of, the, of the power of AI to accomplish certain kinds of tasks. Um, the, as, with regard, so coming back around then to the other question about the, you know, where does our university stand on theology? We are very explicitly not connected to any particular religious faith or political party. And I, the way I would put it is we are very resolutely in the common sense center of opinion. Um, in terms of, you know, so where do we stand? Well, what does that mean? Um, what I would say is, you know, I mentioned these ideals of open inquiry, intellectual humility, civil discourse, and, th and that those presuppose them some things. One way to think about that is, why would anyone ever be opposed to those things? Who, who could say, no, open inquiry is bad, civil discourse is bad. There are people who say this. Uh, well, you, you, you know, know I mean? you, you left one out, and that's a, a lot of people have real trouble with humility. 
Yeah. Oh, well, what does that mean? Oh, are you asking me to just sit down and shut up and listen to you regardless, uncritically? You know, that's a real stumbling block for a lot of people. It, it is. Especially it is. intellectuals. This is true. This is true. And, and, and I think it, has to, it also has to do with what is the purpose of a university? I realize that for, for many people, especially in the humanities, the purpose of a university is like a seminary. It's like, we have got the truth. We, we done figured it out. And now we're going to download it into your head, little Johnny, and you are going to go out and proselytize this truth of, of um, usually kind of progressive identity politics for us. I suppose you could imagine a conservative side, but it doesn't really exist, you know. So not, not anymore. Not anymore. Been a few centuries. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But this was, you know, this was the origin of the university system, at, at least in the West. You know, you had you had scholasticism. You had sort of the, you know, got to give these guys credit. A lot of monks, you know, sort of scraping together the the what was left of the wisdom of the ages and keeping it going. Uh, you had uh, the 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 great scholastic universities, and then you have the Protestant Reformation, and that, you know, for all of the 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 drama that that caused, you still had, you know, a, a very um, theologically oriented uh, style of academic teaching came over to the U.S. Um, not until really, you know, sort of the progressivism started to, to pick up did they say like, you know what, maybe we should look to Prussia for, <laughs> for the answer about how to educate our kids. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, can you ever fully, uh, if, if you're not going full theological, um, how do you avoid getting sucked into, you know, well, we're just going to program, you know, it's just going to be STEM. We're just going to teach them math. We're going to teach them the test. We're going to be like China. Yeah, yeah. Now, this is, now, you were talking about Joe, and I think, I think one of the things that Joe is very prescient to realize, and, and, and I think maybe Peter is, is coming around to as well, is that, uh, you know, the humanities are inescapable. I think sometimes for people in STEM, there's this idea, you know, the, those people in humanities, they're crazy. Who cares what they say? It won't have any real world effects. But, oh, boy, does it. Right. It's just a lag time. So all this stuff that we're dealing with now that 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 that, you know, people whose na native specialty and, and interest is in STEM think is crazy. You know, that be that began in um, that began as esoteric stuff in universities and humanities departments 30, 40, 50 years ago. You know, this has been building for a long time. And so I think people now realize like, OK, actually, the humanities do matter, you know, and actually the universities do matter because. Um, they're, they're going to exist, and uh, we are going to train people. We are going to train a new elite one, one way or another, um, and so it is important to think about in what sense are we doing that. Um, I think um, when we talk, like, what values do we want that new elite to have? And I think for us, the values we want them to have include that there is an objective truth out there. Now, we don't presume to know exactly what it is. We're not, we're not coming to them and saying, look, the objective truth is um, Christ the Logos. You know, we're, we're saying, but there, we are saying that there is a Logos. You know, that, that term Logos came from, from Greek philosophers before the incarnation. The idea that there is an intrinsic structure in the world that is not simply a fiction that we're positing into the world or making up. That's a... That's a Something that can be experienced, not just studied. Yes, exactly. So that there is a there is a uh, so what that means is that when we when it comes time to test uh, precepts, we're not just testing for coherence. We're not just testing for consensus. We're also testing for correspondence, right? Do they actually match how the world works? And as it turns out, um, history. And even literature are good ways of testing this because you think, 
Well, does this ring true to what I understand of human nature? What do I know about human nature? Okay, let's, let's look at what's been written about it over time. You know, we're not biologically, we're essentially indistinguishable from the people in the Iliad. You know, would, would this work with the people in the Iliad? If Maybe not, slightly lower T count. Yeah, probably, probably, probably true, probably true. Probably, yeah, yeah, probably not. But yes, yeah, but, but still, we're still hanging on. You know, I, I, we're not I, an alien species I, yet. I had this professor who said, you know, we're only this far from killing each other with spears. Yeah. And I think um, sometimes, and, and I think sometimes um, a lot of new theories that come through, they, they need to be exposed to this test of what, it, what is the reality. And that reality is not, in fact, something infinitely malleable. Human nature is not something infinitely malleable. It has a, a distinct character. We, we at UATX, we don't presume to say what that character is, but we do say the direction of our, of our study should be to try to figure that out, not to try to invent it whole cloth out of nowhere or, and then force people to agree to it. Our job is instead to discern something that is there, that, that is out there to be found. How do you approach that process, that goal, um, at a time when uh, the, the credibility of books, the importance of books, um, has really been undermined? Uh, partly just because, you know, we, we developed this intellectual class and like, you know, everyone sort of has to have their book and has to game the New York Times bestseller list. And, you know, these books are just sort of used as, mm. as cudgels. And increasingly, you know, and then we have the smartphones and then we're not using books as cudgels anymore, but we're still using words. We're using text messages and we got the receipts. And, you know, it's really just like a, a never-ending war of words and it's a deluge of words. And it's, uh, you know, Hamlet's famous line about words, words, words. Like it's just too many, you know, it's a constant signal and it becomes so much noise. Um, how do you, you know, how do you uh, uh, discern which books are worth people's time now? Uh, and how do you um, encourage, you know, younger people who are going to be, you know, we're going to hand them this bag soon enough um, to, to have an appreciation for, uh, for what books can bring to the table for them without turning them into you know how it is. You just, oh, thank God I have books because I can tune out the world. I can just worm my way through this corpus or that corpus. I can write my PhD on like the one footnote in Rawls that no one's ever written a PhD. You know, so it's just, it, it provides a sort of false escape. How do you avoid that? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. It's, it's a question that's a very live one for us, you know, because as, as we try to figure out what's our curriculum going to be and all of the students are going to go through uh, some shared classes in the humanities where we will be, you know, the whole co cohort will be reading um, authors like Plato and Aristotle and Aeschylus and so on, um, as well, and newer authors too, um, you know, uh, um, uh, for example, a, a history of the development of the atomic bomb, how did that happen? Um, so how do we select those books? And, and I was deeply involved in these kind of curriculum wars uh, at, at my previous job. And I realized that for people who believe that human nature is infinitely malleable, that we can make the new Soviet man, that we can reshape what human beings are, the test of a book is, is kind of its newness. You know, the newer, the better. The, the assumption is we're, we're, we're building from zero hour to the, to the beautiful, perfect future. And so the closer to now, the closer to that perfect future. So, so the new is better than the old. And, uh, and then how do we discern among the new? Well, we look for consensus among, among fellow utopians. 
which, which, which of these books is, is most sympathetic to our, our utopian project, whichever it may be. That is not our principle of selection. <laughs> instead, uh, instead, our principle of selection is um, more like what uh, the 18th century critic Samuel Johnson talks about when he says, uh, you know, the, the reason why a book stands the test of time is because it speaks to something abiding in the human character. You know, why, why are we still reading the Iliad? Why are we still reading Shakespeare? Uh, because, um, well, as Samuel Johnson said, you know, if, if you took a, a man like a hermit or like Mowgli the Jungle Boy and you wanted to educate him in what is a human being, the works of Shakespeare could do that for you. This, this, is, a, this is what human nature is. And so we want to choose books that, um, that speak to what, it, what is abiding and what is, what, is, what, it, what is the same in human nature. And yet, um, at the same time, recognize that history has changed and can kind of talk about the different societies that have formed and the different possibilities that have emerged. Let's talk about Shakespeare a little bit. Um, I, I did drop the, the Hamlet quote. I'm a Hamlet guy. Um, I, I know that your uh, Shakespeare knowledge has got to be infinitely greater than mine. Uh, the thing that I find really interesting about Shakespeare and the persistence of Shakespeare is, you know, I, I, the, the Folio Society complete set, you know, it's this imposing, it's just like you can see the, the shelf sagging when you put all yeah, these yeah. tomes up on there. But they're, it's not, they're not really books. You know, yeah, they have a cover and they have pages inside. But it wasn't Shakespeare and Sitchin. I'm going to write a book like Samuel Johnson or whoever. These are plays, and there's such a difference in the character of words, the character of language, the way that he's using words as an artist. That you're just you're not going to get it out of um, out of you know a Hume or a Johnson or any of the yeah, a Gibbon. You know, one of these great British guys who could just sit down and write um, from sunup to sundown and and just be the most beautiful prose of all time. Um, Shakespeare did something else. He did something that was performative and that was performed and it was something that, you know, we read it as, oh, this genius language. You know, the people who were crowding in to see Shakespeare's plays were not all academics. They were not all high IQ folks. And uh, one of the reasons why, one of the reasons why his works do have stood the test of time is because, you know, yes, there's a bit of a barrier to entry as far as the language is concerned, but it does speak to the human character in a way that you can't get from you know, from, from the history, although he wrote historical plays, or from, you know, encyclopedias, or from uh, uh, biology or anthropology. There's something about um, the fact that he's using characters, and that he's using theater, um, something performative about it, something, something different from what you get out of prose. Um, what is it that you find to be sort of the most relevant right now that we get out of Shakespeare and that Shakespeare brings to the table. Okay, You're right. uh, to speak to your, your observation that he's writing plays and not novels, for example. Um, you know, in Shakespeare's lifetime, there was this big debate with the Puritans about whether or not theater should be allowed mm -hmm. to happen. Because there was this idea, you know, theater is showing all these disreputable, vicious things, people killing each other and, and, and sleeping around and so on. like. What if people start to do that? And we should, we should remove it from the stage. Um, and uh, Shakespeare, I think, instead saw in theater an opportunity to move people to repentance. 
if you remember from Hamlet, that's what he hoped, that's what Hamlet hopes to do with Claudius, mm-hmm. and sort of does. Mm-hmm. Now it's not perfect, right? But Claudius, Hamlet stages the play within a play where Claudius sees someone kill his brother like he killed his brother, and he's he's moved by it, and he jumps up, and he he's 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 agitated, you know. Um, I think Shakespeare wants to believe that by by showing people an image of themselves, you can reveal who they are. It's like in um, you know, it's like in the Old Testament when. Uh, the prophet Nathan wants to explain to King David what he's doing wrong with Bathsheba. And he tells them this story about a, like a, a poor shepherd who gets his one, you know, if you t- take the one lamb from the poor shepherd, then wouldn't that be wrong? And King David gets very agitated. And the prophet Nathan says, well, that's like you with Bathsheba. By defamiliarizing uh, sin in this way, it, it, it makes it, it, we sort of, it disables our defenses and lets it hit home with ourselves. Like, Oh wait, that's me, or that could be me. You know, if I what I'm doing, if I were a king, if I were a general like Othello, that that could be me, and I think um, that does work more powerfully in a theater because you're sort of you're sort of trapped in there, right? Mm-hmm. And also because I think there is a an ineffable quality of connection. I remember when I when I was doing acting, um, it's it's kind of hard to act, to to rehearse by yourself. It's much easier if someone's watching you or if you have another fellow actor that you're going back and forth with because you sort of build each other up. You have this intersubjective connection. So I think that that human connection with the actor on the stage in a theater, it, it lets this, this process of indirect self-revelation happen more powerfully. It's interesting. There's uh, one, of, one of the lines that jumped out to me when I was but a, a student um, studying Alexis de Tocqueville, yeah. Democracy in America, uh, to be precise, um, is he was talking about the French Revolution <clears throat> and how it was bad and in what way it was bad. <laughs> um, and, you know, obviously heads rolled and so on and so forth. Sure. But the thing that he singled out, he said it was as if all of the laws of moral analogy had been broken. And that's like not, you know, that's not like a bumper sticker, you know? (laughs) And it sounds like what you're talking about here um, with regard to uh, uh, the theater of repentance, uh, with regard to, I mean, it's the Old Testament, it's the New Testament, it's it's Christ speaking in parables, parables, parables. Why parables? Mm. Like, well, you know, if, if you... I mean, let alone the Son of God, if you are just trying to teach the course on Shakespeare or whatever, yeah. right? Like, it can be very helpful pedagogically to speak through parables because you are setting up this kind of moral analogy in very simple terms where you have, you create mm-hmm. little little play with a few characters, and whether it's a prodigal son or whomever, and the the student or the disciple or the hearer can't help but sort of start making mm-hmm. these moral analogies. And so there's a way in which, you know, it is actually character forming. You are doing being human by being looped in to that kind of presentation. Um, and I think that that is tremendously powerful. Uh, and, you know, it's, this is not usually what we get out of, um, out of like the case for Shakespeare today, right? Like we, we get, well, you know, students need to learn how to read difficult texts. 
or like, well, you know, Shakespeare is important because he wasn't really Shakespeare. He was really this other guy. And if we now there's this whole other area where we can like escape from the world and have these debates or arguments about whether Shakespeare was really Marlowe or the early, you know, whoever, whoever it was. Um, uh, and what we don't often get is we don't often hear about repentance. We don't often hear about uh, 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 about the 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 language of the heart mm. in Shakespeare. We usually hear a lot about the words. Yeah, there's a lot of reasons for that, man. I think um, I think part of it is a lot of people who are Shakespeare professionals today, like uh, professors or theater professionals, you know, producers, actors, and so on, um, are prog- progressive and, and secular. Uh, and cosmopolitan, and Shakespeare is not really progressive or secular or cosmopolitan. He's a he's a Englishman writing. He's a Christian writing 400 years ago. He, by our standards, he's conservative, Christian, and and nationalist. And um, and so the the desire to kind of dance around this aspect of his character leads people to to come up with all sorts of roundabout weirdnesses and evasions and so on. Um, the other problem I think that we get into is uh, people having trouble articulating the value of the humanities. Studying the humanities only really makes sense if you believe that there is such a thing as human nature to be discerned and found. I suppose if you were a total uh, totalitarian aspirant wannabe, you could study the humanities to try to figure out how can I make more effective propaganda, right? But even then you're sort of thinking there is such a thing as a human being and I'm going to figure out how to press the buttons and and play them like a flute, you know? Um, But the whole point of studying the humanities is to figure out what are human beings. For example, I had a student who went on to be very successful in the world of finance. And he said, you know, studying Shakespeare was very valuable to me because it taught me about how human beings make decisions. He said a lot of the stock market is figuring out what are people likely to think about this stock? You know, what, are people going to think this is worth value? Are they going to get scared and sell and so on? And um, and he said, you know, just just thinking about the human psychology side of of making these different bets. Um, so to me, it's straightforward to say the value of studying Shakespeare is to discern human nature. But the catch for some people is to say, ah, but that means you think that there is a human nature that 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 abides and is the same in Shakespeare's time as it is now. And to which I would say, yes, there is, you know, just like I think there's a more generally abiding truth uh, of, of the universe. I, I don't claim to know it fully. I might well be wrong. I'm open to feedback about it, but I do think it's out there to be found. What's your favorite Shakespeare? Uh, the Winter's Tale. Okay. See, this is, this is a deep cut. Um, <laughs> there was, uh, yeah. was it uh, Mark Helprin who wrote a whole novel called The Winter's Tale or Winter's Tale, I guess. Uh, but uh, what's the... What's, what's so great about The Winter's Tale? Not, not commonly ranked in the top five. Okay, yeah. So, so Shakespeare has these, you know, Shakespeare's best known for these big tragedies he mm-hmm. writes in the middle of his life, like Hamlet, Macbeth, Othello, and so on. He comes back around to these towards the end of his life and rewrites them with a happy ending. So, for example, in a play called The Two Noble Kinsmen, you get a sort of do-over of Ophelia where you have this, this, this uh, young girl, young woman really, goes, goes mad for unrequited love. And then is kind of healed up and brought back to her senses and finds a more suitable match and so on. Um, King Lear loses his daughter in these other plays. They find their long lost daughter. 
And The Winter's Tale is like a rewrite of Othello, where this guy, he thinks his wife is cheating on him. He orders her to be executed. He, he thinks that she's dead. And late in life, after much repentance, he, he discovers that actually she's alive. And they're, they're reunited in a very beautiful and moving scene. And, um, and there's a, a reflection on Shakespeare um, on the power of repentance and, and, and hope and sort of faith to, to restore a world that has been damaged by sin. That, that sin isn't necessarily the end of the story. Now, maybe that restoration occurs in this life. Maybe it occurs in the next life. But that message of, of hope and restoration, to me, is very, is very uh, powerful. Absolutely. Repentance again. Uh, this is as, as good an excuse as any to, uh, to finish strong with full theology. All right. uh, you know, we're talk, talking about repentance here. Um, in the West, the West, uh, there has been, I think it is fair to say, a, um, a highly uh, juridical uh, mm. understanding of repentance that has emerged and taken hold over the centuries. Uh, that, you know, there's a, a Catholic strain of this as well as a Protestant strain of this where, you know, we must propitiate the wrath of God and uh, if we don't do that, then uh, punishment is going to rain down on us. And uh, so how do you figure out how to propitiate the wrath yeah. of God? Well, you know, uh-oh, maybe we can't trust the priests because they got all corrupt and they're in bed with the state. And uh, they're, you know, succumbing to venality and simony and all these bad things. Um, Uh-oh, we can't trust the Bible. Everyone disagrees on what it means. Oh, there's the printing press. Now any idiot can and will read the Bible <laughs> yeah, and yeah, have yeah. their own sort of interpretation of yeah. what it is. Oh, man. Okay, well, if the book is, fa- if, the, if, the, if the holy book is failing us, is there some other book around that we can use to figure out how to, uh, how to avoid incurring the wrath of God. And they're like, oh, well, how about the book of nature? Yes, surely this is something upon which (laughs) everyone can agree will just become uh, scientific masters, uh, fully decode the book of nature, and then this will allow us to to have this sort of divine equipment, uh, and we won't do anything that will bring God's wrath down on us. Uh, You can, you know, insert Hobbes here or like any of these other guys. Where you know where religion becomes all about fusing temporal and and uh, and spiritual power, and uh, worship becomes uh, entirely a matter of glorifying God. There's like no soteriology, no theology of salvation. It's just about building and building and building and building. You know, a, almost a tower that could maybe one day reach all the way up to God. I think you see this in some of you know, God bless them, Elon and and even Jack from Twitter. You know, mm. we're going to extend. The, the light of consciousness throughout the universe. This is how we're going to arrive at truth. This is how we are going to avoid killing off all of humanity, having some extinction level event. We're going to avoid the wrath of God. We're going to have peace and, and unity and global consciousness and universal consciousness. And that's, that's the thing that makes our human character worth anything is that we have the spark of consciousness. It's so rare, so precious. We got to hang on to that light and expand it throughout the universe. Uh, it all sounds great on paper, but what is being lost, you know, and, and what is the blind spot to that? Well, you look at, you know, where are we today in American culture with regard to um, penitence 
And what is our sort of model of repentance? Well, uh, the, the Wokies have a very strong and, and confident answer to that question, which is, well, we have to go back through all of recorded history and we need to identify um, with particularity who has sinned against justice, who has been imperfect, who has committed uh, uh, acts of, uh, of oppression or aggression down to the tiniest microaggressions. We need a complete universal, we need a book of all transgressions. And we are going to appoint ourselves sort of priestly caste, and we're going to go down the list. Oh, it says here that, you know, uh, Europeans committed these various <laughs> injustices. And you, you yourself, you know, we've got a record. We've got the receipts of all of your injustices and everything. And we are going to punish you. And it is only through that kind of punishment that we can properly worship the God of justice. That's what seems to me to be going on. And so, you know, the solution is not to set fire to the Western canon or to Western history, but it does seem to me that there has been, and it was, you know, there was a split. There's, there's Eastern Christianity too. And the Eastern Christian model of, of repentance, of metanoia, of a change of heart, is something that just is, I think, quite different from, from the, the kind of juridical way that things have unfolded in the West and have, you know, have led to a lot of religious warfare and a lot of religious conflict, some of which we might be continuing to experience to this very day. Uh, do you have a take on this? Do you think that there's something about the, the difference, the sort of different, different feel, different character to how uh, ancient Christianity or Christianity in the East um, thinks about uh, repentance as more of an experience? Um, mm -hmm. Is there something there that would help us kind of get out of some of these dilemmas today? Yes, certainly. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I myself am an Orthodox Christian. There you go. Not not originally born so. I mean, I was raised um, Presbyterian and then kind of um, became an atheist for a long time, partly because I was horrified by Calvin. The Presbyterian to atheist pipeline. Yeah, 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 yeah. And part of and part of it had to do with this problem, you know, because uh, what I thought was, it's very hard for you know. We talk about God being a loving God, but I thought. It's hard for me to believe in it that God is loving if he gets so indignant and has all this wrath. I don't I don't see sort of wrath as a as a as a loving thing, you know, or certainly not indignation like you wounded my dignity. I thought the whole point of Christ is that he um he 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 gives up on dignity. He washes people's feet. He rides on a cold. He lets himself be crucified. I mean, there's there's like hardly any way to be more undignified than 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 what he did. So I thought I I, I can't see dignity being this overwhelming priority for God in the way that this narrative of his indignation and wrath would seem to suggest. So I was, and I remain, very attracted to the Orthodox uh, understanding of atonement, which instead says that um, what is sought is a change of heart, and that it's not that um, God is angry at us for the sake of his own honor, God doesn't really care about his own honor. It's like, you know, I have a little daughter. I don't, I don't care about my honor with her. You know, it's like, uh, I, I love, you know, I love her. I want her to be well. Um, uh, he might care how we perceive him for our sake, you know? Um, uh, so I think within the Orthodox world, the idea is that God is loving and that what we what we perceive as um, wrath has to do with our lies to ourselves. You know, uh, there's a very interesting um, uh, 
um, sermon that I read called the, the River of Fire, which was talking about the afterlife. And it, it said, you know, for the Orthodox, the Orthodox don't believe in these sort of rigid categories of hell, purgatory, heaven. Um, they would say, you know, the afterlife is, 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 a, is a more um, mysterious place. And this sermon was saying, the afterlife is to be in God's presence, which we experience as love or which we can experience as, as pain because uh, it depends on our relation with ourselves and our relation with God. And, and um, that has to do with how honest we are, we are with ourselves about who we really are. You know, there's a play by Sartre, Hui Clo, No Exit, which has this famous line, hell is other people. The, the, you know, these three people realize, oh, this is the afterlife and we're in hell because we're trapped here with each other. And, but, but also heaven is other people. It all depends on how, how you get along and how you get along depends eventually in the long durée on being honest and being real with each other about who you really are. And so what, what, what Jesus wants from us is to um, be honest with him and insofar as possible with other people about who we really are, which is often not as, as exalted as we would, would like it to be. And so, um, you know, I think one way of understanding God's wrath or what people think of as the fires of hell or so on is that it's like this pain as we try to keep a mask on that really we should just let go of and, and, and admit who we are in, in, in our imperfection. And so this... Um, and the idea is that church and prayer and all the practices of worship are, are kind of hospital to do this or a kind of treatment regime or um, uh, regimen, I should say, or um, they're a way of helping us to do this. And I find this idea of, of um, you know, um, church and prayer and faith practices as, as a hospital or as therapeutic uh, much more appealing than this idea of them as, as juridical or punishing. And I think... Um, it's certainly much more appealing than, than the identity politics version. I think one of the most dangerous things about identity politics is that it's a category that you're trapped in. Social class, you know, you can conceivably change. People go from rich to poor and poor to rich. You know, in, in the Middle Ages, they would talk about the wheel of fortune. You know, you go down. But, you know, if you're white, man, you're white. Or black, you're black. You know, and, and frankly, if you're, if you're male, you're male. Or if you're female, you're female. And it's not gonna, you're not going to change that. And so if we get into this... Um, if we, if we start talking about those categories and we make that into a substitute for morality, then we, we, there's a great risk of putting people into despair. You know, what, what, you know, if you tell people being white is bad, white supremacy is bad, blah, 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 there's no way you can kind of unwhite yourself, right? So um, you're sort of trapped and you're prey to the same kind of despair that you see among Calvinists with people who are afraid that they're reprobates or that they're doomed to hell. I really think that uh, there's a reason why, there's all sorts of reasons why identity politics in this radical strain appeared in America. Partly I think it's that Calvinist heritage. We've mapped on the, the elect and the reprobate to sort of white and, and, and non-white, so to speak, you know, white and black. And, and, um, and that is, I think, psychologically damaging for people of, of, whatever, of whatever race or whatever persuasion. Uh, so I'm, a, I'm much more attracted to a more humane and I think more correct model that um, the important aspects of ethics have to do with other things. They have to do with our relations between each other as individuals and that those are relationships that we can reconfigure. We can, if we've been doing them wrong, we can recognize it, we can repent, and we can change 
um, how we behave towards each other. Amen to that. Uh, there's a reason why it's not called character politics, it's identity politics. <laughs> identity without character is a scary thing. Uh, Patrick, thank you so much. That is literally all the time we've got. Zeros across the clock. Uh, at least until next time when we will be back. If you found this conversation meaningful, and who wouldn't, really, please consider becoming a Blaze TV subscriber to help us create more content just like this, except even better. Go to blazetv.com and use the code ZeroHour20, that's Z-E-R-O-H-O-U-R-2-0, for $20 off your first year of Blaze TV. This is Zero Hour. I am James Polis, and may God have mercy on us all.